Dunkin' is putting a whole new spin on pumpkin at Dunkin' with our new pumpkin cream cold brew. Smooth, bold, cold brew topped with velvety pumpkin cream cold foam made with cinnamon and nutmeg spices. And there's more pumpkin for you to love, like the delicious fall classic, our pumpkin spice signature latte. Rich espresso topped with whipped cream, caramel drizzle, and cinnamon sugar. That's how we pumpkin at Dunkin'. Sip into the fall season with the $3 medium pumpkin cream cold brew or pumpkin spice signature latte. America runs on Dunkin'. Participation may vary. Limited time offer. Exclusion apply. Valid on pumpkin spice signature latte only in all cold foam cold brew. Ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention, please? Good evening. You're listening to Straight Talk with Dean and Mark. We thank you for tuning in and hope you enjoy another exciting episode of our show. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Straight Talk with Dana Mark. It's the second Monday in the month of May, and it looks like the year is going by pretty quickly. But a couple of things, a couple of interesting articles that begin this week on a Make It Happen Monday. Biden says people able to work must take jobs or lose unemployment. Now, as business owners from coast to coast say they can't find enough workers willing to come back to work, President Biden said on Monday he wants to make sure people offered a job either take it or lose the generous COVID-19 unemployment benefits. Now, the law is clear. If you're receiving unemployment benefits and you're offered a suitable job, you cannot refuse that job and just keep getting the unemployment benefits, Biden said at the White House. No one should be allowed to game the system, and we will insist that the law is followed. Now, Biden didn't say exactly how current rules could be more strictly enforced, but states administer unemployment benefits and many are bedeviled by notoriously outdated and inefficient computer systems. Biden added, let's not take our eye off the ball. Families who are just trying to put food on the table, keep a roof over their head, they aren't the problem. Biden made the comments even as White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki insisted that the benefits which pay some people more not to work, were not the cause of disappointing job numbers released last week. Sasaki told reporters at her daily briefing, we don't see the evidence that extra unemployment, unemployment insurance is a major driver in people not rejoining the workforce. Now, Biden tried to present a rosy overall take on the nation's recovery, saying the economy was moving in the right direction, despite slower job growth. And he called on Congress to pass his $4 trillion infrastructure and families plan. He also argued that companies, many of them have suffered huge losses after enduring a year of pandemic shutdowns and other restrictions and still not fully back to 100% capacity, may be to blame for failing to lure workers back with higher pay. My expectation is that as our economy comes back, these companies will provide fair wages and safe work environments. 
And if they do, they'll find plenty of workers, and we're all going to come out of this together better than before, he said. Now, a federal report on Friday revealed slower-than-anticipated job growth in April. The U.S. added just 266,000 new jobs, far below estimates of around 1 million as the economy rebounds from the COVID-19 pandemic. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which represents businesses, blamed a $300 weekly federal supplement for the unemployed and called on the government to end it before it's set to expire in September. Biden on Friday said that the supplement is not to blame for the disappointed job report. My, the idea that they don't want to work, most middle class, working class people that I know think the way my dad did. A job is a lot more than a paycheck. He'd say, Joey, it's about your respect, your dignity, your place in the community, Biden said. But studies have found that a large number of lower wage workers do earn more staying home. The University of Chicago study found that 42% of people claiming unemployment insurance earn more through the government checks than they did at their prior jobs. The Chamber of Commerce estimated a quarter of people do. So, <laughs> it's a funny situation, man. You're stuck. Are you going to stay at home and get a bigger check? Or are you going to go to work and make what you used to make? I don't know. If that were me, I might stay at home, too. You can't really blame individuals for companies who have more than enough money to uh, pay individuals holding back. But then that actually does a disservice because companies that cannot afford, small businesses that are not able to maybe give up those larger numbers, have you know paid employees through the pandemic and then now they can't afford to do so so what is the government going to do to assist not only the small business owners but also the lower wage workers you know I mean it's an argument on both sides you could say well you know what you want to earn more you learn more but that's not always the case everybody is not in the same situation so for you know, like the president said, oh, my my father this, my father that. Well, man, I don't know, no disrespect to you, but you, you came from a different time period where those people would have shoveled dirt for 25 cents an hour. Hell, what was minimum wage when he was working? You know, so you look at those things. Now, fast forward to now and 725, not making it. It's not making it. It's not doing anyone any good so maybe you want to see about just like I always say you send that aid to other countries and you're helping them out how about taking that same aid and helping us out and then we won't have these dilemmas and problems and issues and other things going on but I'm going to get off my soapbox right now it's the six man Dean Geronimo I'm in the studio from NJ to NC with my right hand man Mark Lee so Mark Tell me what's good in your neck of the woods, my brother. Well, we had a little bit of rain uh, earlier today, and definitely things are still uh, going on. You know, things are having rain, and people are doing events. As a matter of fact, I was running a little bit late because I was talking to my uh, fine folks over there at the Hate Out here in the Senate. They're trying to see if I could come in doing a Saturday morning, but, you know, I still got things that I'm doing as well, so I got to <laughs> see how that plays in with my event right. with uh, – 
um, Brother Zach since I, you know, I produced a show with Brother Zach, and that's already on the schedule. But I told him that if they can make these people that want to have a meeting do the meeting either before Brother Zach or after Brother Zach, then I can come in. But if it's doing Brother Zach, I can't come in because I'll be working with right. Brother Zach. So, like I said, you know, it's got to do things according to what's going on and all of that. So I will uh, play it by ear and see what goes on mm-hmm. in that regards and everything. But just playing it by ear and seeing what's happening there. And I heard you talking about um, the fact that we need some more money and there's all these employment reports yeah. and people are upset about these employment numbers. But, you know, if you're not making enough money, then you might decide to stay at home and get the stimulus and the unemployment and other things. Because what, the minimum wage has been stuck on stupid for like about 15 to 20 years and it's still stuck exactly. on stupid. So we need to get it stuck off of stupid so that people can actually go and earn some money and be able to live and everything. I actually had the privilege earlier today of talking to Matthew Morales, who wrote a book called uh, about um, being poor and getting out of poverty, and he's out of Los Angeles, so he wrote this book and everything, so he was my guest on Mullins and Music and Memories, and he has this thing called MoneyMystic.co and all of that, but he's a very powerful gentleman and is basically talking about us getting out of poverty, but a lot of it is common sense stuff, you know, like, you know, putting some of your money aside for investments, putting some of it aside for gifts, putting a certain amount, but not the whole kitchen sink out for fun and things of that nature, but he's a very powerful person. He's definitely, you know, a fan of Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and folks along those lines. So it was just great having this conversation with Mr. Morales and talking to him about his book and everything. His book is called Never Be Poor Again, and he was a poor youngster and has written the ways that he got out of this. And he talked about an experience he had with his girlfriend when they were overseas and were basically stuck in the excuse me, very poor and all of that. But he shares a lot of that, very uh, forthright, very open about what he's going through and all of that and what he's been through. But, you know, sometimes folks just want to be stuck on stupid and they want to keep themselves stuck on stupid no matter what we tell them or how we tell them to get off of stupid just because they're stuck on that whole mentality and all of that. So definitely it was a great conversation with him. But along those same lines, I was wondering your thoughts. Um, you know, that idiot still likes to get himself in the news. And he got himself in the news because of sports. Because, you know, <laughs> there was a certain horse that won a certain race, and the horse might have been drugged. So now he's trying to use that as a reason to blame the border and what's going on in the border and the drug trade. So what a horse being, you know, and one, you know, I don't know Bob Baffert personally, but he seems to think that he's got a good self-defense or a good defense. So I don't know when the second test will come out and what uh, Churchill Downs will do or what they'll decide to do with the Kentucky Derby winner and all of that. But I don't know how you can make a parallel between what is going on in a horse's life with their trainer and what's going on on the border. But he tried to make that parallel. And like I said, I'm not 100% convinced that the – well, we know the horse wasn't at fault because the horse is only going to give you the whatever drugs the humans gave the horse and everything. It's not like the horse came in ass to be doped up and everything if he was doped up. And at the same time, you know, it's a scandal within all sports, including um, sports that are run by animals. I don't care if it's horses, 
dogs or um, I'm trying to think of what other animals we've got that are sports animals, and those are the only two that I can think of. But whatever, I'm sure some places they're racing ostriches and uh, other animals, but whatever they might be racing, I'm sure that it's an issue no matter what, but it's up to the trainers to be honest, the staff to be honest, and all of that, and we'll find out how it plays out and if that particular horse will even get a chance to run the Preakness or not, since that's the uh, next leg and everything. I think the Belmont, the one up by you, is the last leg. But we'll find out whether they'll get a chance to run in Baltimore or not. But, you know, I actually feel kind of sorry for the animal, because if the animal was injected, it's not. do, do you think that uh, <laughs> Medina Spirit was sitting there going like, hey, you, you humans, I'm in pain. Could you shoot me up with something? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> you know what? It, some people would do anything to win, man. So it, it's, it's crazy how, you know, you post-test. What about the pre-test? Was it a pre-test before exactly. the race? You know, I don't know. It, it's it's just like, but then again, did they dope the horse? Did they not dope the horse? You know what? It's just one of those things where... We don't know the whole story. We just know the after effects. So now, if they test positive at any time, they should just be disqualified. It's that simple, man. Like, if you need to use an enhancer to win, then basically you're it's equivalent to cheating, and you should be disqualified. I don't care what the reason is. Oh, it's for the horse for pain. Yeah, but when that horse can't race anymore, what are you going to do with the horse? You're not going to just let it die. You're going to send it somewhere, and it's going to end up being made out of glue or something. So, you know, I I don't – people bet money on this stuff, and I'm like, y'all are betting on cheaters and hoping the cheaters are being on a level, and then you lose your money. And to find out that you lost your money when somebody cheated, that's a double kick in the neck. So, you know, know, that's the ironic thing, Nate. I found out that – I think the big bettors are the ones, because I was reading an article of this, I think the big bettors are the ones that have to return their money. You know, like, you know, the like if they find the horse guilty and everything, I'm sure that the big winners, the owners of the horse and the, you know, whatever syndicate was owning the horse, they will have to return the money. But if you, Common Joe, or you as a citizen, bet on Medina Spirit and the horse won, the horse won, you got paid. Guess what? You have to give back your money because, as far as the betters are concerned, even if the horse was a dumped-up horse, they don't feel that it's probably just too much of a hassle trying to collect and figure out who bet on it, when they bet on it, where they live at. Because you know, half the people that are betting there in Kentucky ain't from Kentucky, so it's probably just that it's too much of a hassle. But they did say that if you won on the horse even after they do this split sample which is supposed to be the confirmation sample that if it turns out that that horse has been totally disqualified you do not have to give up your winnings you get to keep your winnings even though your horse was the dope horse wow see that could get somebody hurt man that, can you that imagine could that because you know that somebody knows the second place horse and they know the winner so they find out that your horse is the dope horse, and you're going to get the money, and they don't get the money. Yeah, I'm yeah. thinking some people could seriously get hurt. There could be some serious conversations and some serious people upset about that, and they'd be sitting there going like, look, I know your horse because they told me in the news media was the dope horse. So you you know that $2,000 you won? 
you need to give me that $2,000 right now. And, you know, the other guy's going to be like, but they told me it's my money to keep. And you'd be like, yeah, but my horse is the real winner. You need to give me that $2,000. So it can be some very intense conversations that, as you put it, could lead to some people getting hurt. Yeah, but it won't be me because I saved my couple of dollars. And you know what? I might take a guess, but I'm not putting any money down on it because you can't trust that the people who are presenting these athletes or, uh, you know, horses or whatever kind of race it is, are they all really on a level or are they just playing the win by any means necessary? And that's a weird situation. I'm with you on that. I'm like – I don't know who's in cover are, uh, but, you know, I'm not going to lie. I will do, and we've talked about this on the show before, I will do, you know, the um, fantasy football, and that is a form of gambling, and I will put my money on my athletes, hoping that they do well and everything, and I will put a certain amount of money. I know you do the same. I will do the basketball picks when NCAA tournament comes and everything. But, you know, usually then you've got, several elements, and there is a, at least some semblance of a science to it. I mean, oh. yes, there's a lot of things that are beyond your control and things of that nature, but at least there's some semblance of a science to it, even though some people that win these things, they have no science, because I know some people that told me they <laughs> won based on the color of a T-shirt or the color of a jersey or something like that. So, But technically speaking, there should be a science to the madness. So definitely, if it's something in detail like that, I might do it, but no, I've said and I do still want to go to a horse race, but even if I go to the horse race, I don't know that I'm going to put any money on the horse. Or if I do, it's going to be a minimal amount just so that I can say that I bet on something. But there's a lot of too many factors that are out of my control in those kind of situations. And then, you know, and then if you do it with humans, then you've got it a whole other thing because that would be a whole other aspect. Because, you know, you never hear about us, and yes, I'm being slightly sarcastic, but you never hear about us betting against humans when they have track meets. And isn't that the same thing as what the horses are doing? I don't know, bro, but I do know I play the free version of fantasy football because I'm not putting – hey, I'm not putting my money on it, man. You know, if I'm putting money on it, I'm going to buy a ticket to get to a Baltimore Ravens game. But other than that, you know – Performance is well, you unpredictable. Know, any given Sunday could be the last one you play, and any given Sunday you can be defeated. So with those two things so, in mind, man, I play the free version for me. That way, you know, if I lose, no harm, no foul. I didn't, I didn't lose anything but a, a guess. <laughs> well, I'm with you on that, and the free versions are fun, and I do the mostly the free versions now. The Basketball thing, I might put in 5 or $10, and it might be even a little bit more than that for the uh, fantasy football. But even though I've yet to win it, my brother has won it. I think he might have even won it twice. And I know we've definitely had family friends that have won multiple times. I've not come close. But I do know that the winners get a pretty nice check. So I'm thinking that, you know, I might still put my money in the hat hoping to get that check one of these days and everything, because I think that they've walked away with, you know, a few thousand dollars. So I'm not going to argue, and it usually is dealed out right around Christmas time. So that means it's coming at a perfect time as well. So hopefully one of these years I might pick your Baltimore Ravens defense again, and they will deliver for me in a sense of giving me a championship. But there's a lot of, as you said, variables involved in that. So if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But I can definitely hear with you what you're saying about 
it being doing the free ones because I've done a number of the free ones as well. And of course, there's no harm, no foul in that one. If you lose, you just lose, and all of that. Now the catch, I will give this: the catch with the free ones is I don't know that you are paying as much attention as you do with the paid one. Because if you pay something into it, it's like anything. If you invested something into it, then you can pay more attention to what your investment is and all of that. Where if it's free, I might let that game go by before I even bother to find out whether we won or lost because it was free. I don't know, but I, I don't, you know, for me, I'm I'm tight on the dollar with that one, man. You know, I'm the type of dude that, hey, I'd rather buy me some Alcohol, take it to the house and drink rather than buying a drink at the bar because it costs more for less. So, you know, I, when I look at it, I'm like, mm, I'm about to pay as much attention to it as I can, but, uh, I, you know, this ain't my job. I ain't going to do it. Because then you get stuck into, you know, you get you get uh, stuck in it. And then next thing well, you know, it, it may start to consume you, you know, and I'm – I'm not going to do that, but what what I can tell you, man, we just had a ring at the doorbell, and we got a guest, so we need to see who that is waiting see to who come in. All right. Let's see. Thanks for calling Straight Talk with Dean and Mark. You are now on the line. Tell us who you are and where you're calling from. Hello? Caller, call, you on the air. Uh, hello. I guess I'll give this a shot. You yeah. got me? We got you. Yeah, we got you. Hey, uh, how's it going? Yeah, I'm, I'm going great. I'm just enjoying listening to you guys. Uh, my name's uh, my name's Scott. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for letting me ring the bell. All right. Yeah, we appreciate you ringing the bell, Scott. Tell folks that are listening all about what you've got going on. I know that we connected through, I believe it was Potted, and you've got a lot of different things going on, and I might have some other folks that might be joining as well. But definitely share a little bit about what you've got going on and what's happening in your world. Yeah, I will uh, I will do that. And uh, special thanks to you, Mark, and, and your tolerance, which I which I sort of tested. So, uh, um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a guy that's sort of in my, my third act. Um, retired FBI agent, started uh, before that. I was a, a climbing guide and then uh, a lawyer. I was a trial attorney. Um, and then uh, met a guy who knew a guy and uh, – uh, I actually grew up in Seattle and uh, ended up chasing uh, Russian military intelligence officers around Manhattan for a number of years um, for the FBI. Went to, went to headquarters, so I worked in, uh, in our nation's capital for a couple of years. And then uh, later in my career, when I was uh, looking for something new to do, the kids were out of the house at that point. Um, I entered our legal attache program and got assigned to Baghdad, Iraq. So I lived in the Middle East um, right around the time Al-Qaeda in Iraq became ISIS um, and, and had a fantastic time a couple of years ago, uh, four years ago, I guess. After 21 years with the, with the Bureau, I retired out and uh, I run a couple of companies and uh, I spent a lot of my time talking about high-performance teams. Which isn't really yeah, talking about racing, although I love racing. But yeah, tell us about what it's like working for high performance teams. I can only imagine what it was like. It's not like you might have been doing that during part of the Cold War and everything. But what was it like actually being part of that whole James Bond narrative and chasing around the Russians when that's what we were doing before we got involved with some of this other kind of 
of terrorism that's going on, including some of the cyber terrorism. But just share with our audience a little bit about what that experience was like running around or after those folks in the, the big city of Manhattan, of New York, in the borough of Manhattan and the other boroughs. Yeah, so it's, I mean, it's, it's a funny thing. When you, when you look at your own life from the inside out, it doesn't seem like it's all that unusual. But uh, from the outside in, I mean, it, and, and this is what brought me into the Bureau, you know, myself, just being told that every country in the world has intelligence services, just like we have the, um, uh, the CIA. We send people to go collect the information that we need to move in the world stage. The rest of the world is doing that uh, as well. And the interesting thing, the fascinating thing about Manhattan in particular is it's the UN. So we have countries that have intelligence service personnel in Manhattan that are countries we don't have diplomatic relationships with. So the North Koreans have people in Manhattan. The Iranians have people in Manhattan. They don't have people in Washington because we don't speak with them diplomatically, but they're in Manhattan. And and the job of this team of remarkable men and women that I was um, privileged to work with and, and at some point lead is uh, to look at all these folks and figure out what they're doing, to try and understand what they want to know that we don't want them to know. And it's it's as simple as, you know, you're you're going to that uh, big economic forum every year and the president is sending whoever he's sending or, you know, you're you're going to the global warming forum. Everybody wants to know what the U.S. negotiating posture is. Everybody wants those documents and they're trying to get in um, to the U.N., to our mission to the U.N. They're trying to get that information so that they can um, negotiate more strongly against us. And so when you're trying to understand that and you're trying to understand the people that are doing that, you really start unpacking people um, and you start chasing them down and you start stopping them from what they're doing. So it's it's not, you know, I, I'm not a parkour guy the way that Daniel Craig is, climbing up cranes and ju- jumping away in front of bombs and stuff like that. But it's pretty interesting when you sit down with one of these guys who's been specifically trained to have that conversation with an FBI agent. It's really, really interesting. What is one of the biggest things that you found out as an FBI agent that surprised you? Because I do know the FBI has been involved in a lot of things, sometimes even internal uh, politics that sometimes have surprised people. I know some people that were involved in civil rights movements and were surprised on some of the internal spying that was going on even among some of our activists and things of that nature. But just as an FBI agent, and I've actually got a cousin who's a GBI officer and everything, what are some of the things that have surprised you that you learned? I I think that that surprised, the biggest thing that surprised me, and, you know, my apologies in advance, hang up on me if you need to, but nobody walks on water. Um, Everybody that works for these agencies is a person, and and really they're they're like you and they're like me. Um, If if you can read and you can think, you can do this job. Um, so there's there's nothing magical about it. It's just it's just being aware that there's a problem to be solved. So normal, they, they really everybody is a normal person. Some aren't great to get along with. Some are. Nobody walks on water. They're just good people trying to do a good job. 
That's a really boring answer, isn't it? Sorry about that. <laughs> no, that's all right. That's a true answer, and I appreciate the honesty about that. I know that the other thing that me and Dean have talked about on this show, and I've also talked about it with my cousin, is, and I actually had the pleasure of uh, one of my other shows talking to two of our Durham police officers, is the fact that for the most part, most police officers and most law enforcement recognize that there is bad law enforcement and y'all just want to get rid of them as bad as anybody else does so when y'all see things that are going on like what happened with Chauvin and some of the other ones y'all are as frustrated by that as anybody else is so I'd love to hear your thoughts about that and how you would like to uh, maybe have I don't know what the avenues are that you have dealt with but ways that you would even deal with folks that are not necessarily doing policing in the, the true way that policing should be done yeah, and it's um, it, there was a lot of the the first time I was exposed to this issue um, was back in the in the early '90s when community policing became a a big thing, and mm-hmm. and you know I understand my perspective. I was a I was a prosecutor, so I worked with patrol officers and detectives in that role as an FBI agent. FBI agents are law enforcement, but they're not. They're not patrol officers. The, the job of pushing a patrol car down the road, pulling people over, responding to domestic violence, that is a fundamentally different job but what, than, you know, chasing a spy or, or you know, doing a two-year investigation to take down a big Ponzi scheme. It's, it's a fundamentally different job. And the point is it takes a fundamentally different personality, and not everybody is wired to be successful as a police officer. Most people that get into that line of work are, but some aren't. And, you know, if you take two giant steps back, I mean, I I sit in this human resources world a little bit these days, hiring is really challenging. Um, And there's no hiring system that's 100%. And so what you need to do is to continue to refine through training and performance evaluation. And it's really hard to show somebody the door when they are now a member of a union and they have this job and they're expecting to be there for 25 years, but they just don't have the personality to, you know, to have somebody take a swing at them and not swing back. Um, And it's, so it it takes a unique personality to be a law enforcement officer the way the, the job needs to be done. And that really is the key. Um, is to make sure that the people that are in those roles, I, mean, I hear you talking about compensation, right? It's mm-hmm. not everybody's hardwired to be a teacher. Not everybody's hardwired to be a minister. Not everybody's hardwired to be a police officer. But when you find the people that are, you need to have those people in those jobs, and they need to be able to make a good living so that they are willing to stay in those jobs. Um, and it's the, the hard conversation is the conversation no one wants to have, which is, you know, sir, ma'am, you just aren't cut out for this, and I know you're going to sue me, and I know your union boss is going to come in and scream at me, but you can't do this job anymore. And I, I, if we have time for a quick story, I remember when I was assistant special agent in charge, I had a good personal friend of mine who was one of the squad supervisors who worked for me, and he never should have been promoted. And the agency was petrified at the notion of asking him to step down. And what they wanted me to do was was write a disciplinary report and get him fired. And what I did was I 
went out and saw him, and I, I basically told him, listen, dude, you, you just you, you can't be a supervisor anymore. I'm really sorry. You know, this isn't, you know, Scott talking to Bill. This is the ASAP talking to the supervisor. You, you can't do this job anymore. So either you can step away or I'm going to do this report. If you step away before I finish the report, then you've stepped away. That was one of the hardest things I ever did is looking at somebody who thought he was good at his job, who was not a fit. He couldn't do it. He really couldn't do it. And I had to tell him, you're done. And so I, I get it that departments can't do that. You have to do that. When you see a man or a woman is not wired to be a police officer, they can't have that job. And and I hate to say it, but union be damned. Um, you're talking about people. You really are. So thanks for not hanging up. I appreciate it. No, that makes a lot of sense. I'm always glad to hear people's views and everything. Now, you've been doing this kind of work for a long time, working at high-performance teams. As a matter of fact, when I was reading your bio, it said that your first job was actually as a climbing guide when you were a teenager, and I can only imagine being a teenager and doing that on a big mountain and everything. So if you share a little bit more about those early years and everything, I'm sure folks would be fascinated by that as well. Yeah, so I uh, I grew up in Seattle, and Mount Rainier is uh, is, is the big the big uh, stratovolcano out there. If you uh, if you Google a picture of Mount Rainier and you're not from that part of the country, you'll you'll think it's photoshopped, and it's not. It's fourteen thousand four hundred and ten feet, and it sits in mountains that are sixty five hundred feet. So it's nine thousand feet higher than the rest of the um, uh, the mountains around it, and Climbers that are going to do Everest and K2 and even Denali up in Alaska, they come to Rainier to climb and to train because the Nisqually Glacier on Rainier is a great training ground for the Kumbu Ice Fall on, on Everest. It just it just is. And when I was climbing in the late 70s um, uh, as a teenager, uh, more people had died on Rainier than had died on Everest at that point. And uh, I, I came up, my family was a scouting family. My my two brothers and I are Eagle Scouts. My sister's a first-class Girl Scout. My mom was a volunteer with the Girl Scouts. My dad was a longtime volunteer for the Boy Scouts. And I got a job at the, at the summer camp that ran the climbing program. I was 15 years old, and I, I'd been to the camp a lot of times. And, you know, my friends are at the beach for the summer, and I'm, I'm 15 years old, and I'm leading a rope team um, at 12,000 feet after having helped run the crevasse rescue school, you know, and again, it was normal to me, but looking back, what a great experience in risk management and consequential environments. And you can do everything right and the mountain will still bite you. And we were, we were co-ed back then. We had, we were an explorer. Um, if you know about scouts at all, we were an explorer program. So at age 16, the Boy Scouts and the Girl Scouts came together back then. So about half of our staff was women, and we climbed together. We, uh, uh, we hiked together. We camped together. We worked together. Um, and nobody cared because what mattered is could you carry the load, would you help set up camp, and would you whine or would you not whine? And if you, you carried your stuff and took care of your gear and you didn't whine and you were part of the team, we didn't care about anything else, nothing else. And wouldn't that be a great world to be in if, if it didn't matter? It didn't matter what your accent is, 
or God you pray to. Just matter, can you do the work, and are you a good person to hang out with? And that's the lesson I learned as a kid. Um, but at the same time, you know, when you're a 15-year-old or a 17-year-old and you're sitting on top of a mountain um, up in the sky, it's hard to describe that. Great experience as a kid. Great experience. Sounds like it. What are some of the things that you think that you learned as an FBI agent and in those early years as well as some of the other things that you've done that have helped you with your high-performance team building? Because I'm thinking that you had to have those kind of team building exercises when you were with these high-intensity kind of units and some of the things that you did overseas. So tell us a little bit about some of the past activities and how they play into what you're doing now. Yeah, and and I think that the big thing is um, stress and, and being in stressful environments changes people. Um, one of the things that we used to do um, with, uh, with climbing was also one of the things the Bureau used to do when they were selecting people for the legal attache program and basically sending people overseas, you know, six or eight time zones away where if, if they do something bad, they may – end up hurting people, and they'll certainly negatively impact the Bureau. So what do you do? How do you make sure you have the right person? And, and one of the things that we talk about now, and in, in, uh, uh, a business partner and I wrote a book on hiring and cybersecurity, and our business process is called Can, Trust, Will. And the can and the will is informed by the Bureau experience, the climbing experience, the courtroom experience. You can... You can talk to a person and interview them, and they're calm. And then you put them on the stand, and they freeze. So what a person can do has no relation at all to what they will do when they're under stress. Some people are cool as a cucumber. Some people can't tie the knot. And so what you have to do when you are evaluating a person is not just understand what they're good at, but you have to understand what they actually will do when they're under stress, and particularly what they will do when they're under the stress they're likely to be in in the situation you're talking about. So is this kid who's doing just fine tying knots at base camp going to be able to tie those knots when it's hard to breathe and he's at 13,000 feet, the wind's coming in sideways, and his fingers are cold? So is the guy that, you know, speaks the foreign language. You know, he speaks Russian. He's got um, family in Moscow, and he's going to be our guy in Moscow. And as soon as he gets to Moscow, he starts drinking um, because that's what you do when you're a native Russian speaker. It's it's those sorts of things. And so when you're looking, and it cycles right back around to uh, the law enforcement thing, it, it's not good enough to be good at something. You have to be good at something when, when the chips are down, you know, and, and I'll circle it right back around to the, you know, to the horse racing. Are you confident in how you train that horse? Mm. Or when the chips are down, are you going to cheat? That's revealing. That tells you about that person. That tells you about the guy who used the needle. Um, and so consequential environments matter. High performance isn't enough. You got to know your stuff, but you have to be able to perform when the wind, you know, the, the rain's coming sideways. So can and will. And I want to know what you will do because that tells me so much more about you than what you can do. Does that make sense? Definitely. Make that makes a lot of sense. 
Yeah, it definitely yeah. makes a lot of sense. I was also wondering, you said you had done not just the work with the Bureau, but you had also done some work in the legal aspects. And I was just wondering, as an attorney, what are some of the things that you feel that you've learned that has helped you in the work that you're doing now as well? And I've actually got friends of mine that are on both the defense and the prosecution side of the whole legal profession. But I was just wondering your thoughts as to some of the things that you learned in doing that work that has helped you and what you suggested other folks go into the legal profession. Because sometimes it gets, seems like it gets a great rap when we're watching legal shows on the TV and the sense of the positivity of it. But then it also sometimes gets the negative rap as well, sometimes because of corruption and make this in it, and also sometimes just because of different things that are going on within the society in general. But I just wanted your take on lawyers and whether that's something that you would even, I don't know if you have kids, but whether you would suggest that they go into the field and also your take is I think you are on the prosecution side. And we do know that, of course, there's a battle between prosecution and defense. Yeah, yeah, there, there, there always is. So, yeah, I've got, I've got three kids and two grandkids. My boy is a mixed martial arts fighter. My uh, One of my daughters is a chef. Uh, my other daughter is a, a university admissions officer. Um, and uh, so they're, they're kind of all over the board. But so I'll give you the positives and negatives. I mean, I, I think going to law school is good because what you learn in law school is the rules of the country. I mean, you want to you understand what's going on now? I mean, I live here in Pennsylvania right now. We're looking at at, uh, you know, next week we're having an election on amending the Pennsylvania Constitution. Um, and, again, if you can read, you can figure it out. But one of the things that you learn is to read with a critical eye. And so learning what you learn in law school is really useful. Um, at the same time, nobody walks on water. You know, you, you got people who are honest. You got people who are going to put the needle in the horse. And just because a person is a lawyer – just because they're a doctor, just because they're in some profession doesn't mean that everybody in that profession is going to lie, cheat, and steal. And I think the other – so people are still people no matter what they do. And the other thing that I, re I realized is, you know, particularly in terms of litigation, when you're preparing for a trial, you spend a lot of time thinking about the fact pattern of the case, the arguments you're going to make. And the problem that you run into is because you've thought about it a lot and you understand it a lot, everything that you're saying makes perfect sense to you, and that doesn't matter if it doesn't make sense to the jury or it doesn't make sense to the judge. If you're having a press conference, what you say has to make sense to the public. Otherwise, you're like, right. you know, the, the adult in the Charlie Brown cartoon. You can be saying all this stuff and nobody understands, right? And And that's... I think where maybe we're, we're at the deeper part of the cycle right now, we think because we care passionately about a thing and we're yelling it, that people will understand. And I, I always joke with my friends when I was um, in the Bureau, and I would say it's like talking to an Australian. You think that you're speaking the same language because you're both speaking English and you both understand the words, and you don't realize until you're a half hour in that you really don't understand each other because even though the words are the same, you're just, you're not communicating. And mm. so I think that the, the cautionary tale that I bring from that time as a litigator is if, if you're in a conversation, and I've told my kids this, if you're in a conversation and you're starting to get mad, 
And if you're in a conversation and the other person starting to get mad, that means you're not understanding each other. So don't be the ugly American in Paris slowly and loudly yelling English at the dude who doesn't understand English. That's not helping anybody. Just back off and start working on communicating. And, and that's a big ask, right? When you're talking about something you care a lot about and the other guy just didn't get it, that's a big ask. But we're adults here, right? So that, those are the two things that I drew from, um, from being an attorney. Gotcha. What is uh, some of the surprises that you had from your work with working with uh, this high-performance training? I'm sure that a lot of folks are probably getting into it and maybe even being overwhelmed by some of the things that you're teaching them. But is that what surprised you, the fact that some people get overwhelmed by it? Or what specifically has, uh, you know, surprised you within the high-performance team-building community? Okay, that's, that's, that's a great question. Um, and and the answer is really a, a disturbing answer. And, and it really is that most people think they don't need help being a leader because they're a great leader, and if these blankety-blank people would just do their jobs, I wouldn't have a problem. And, and so the, the most disturbing thing as I've gotten into, as, as I've taken 40 years of unpacking people and actually building teams and leading teams in difficult environments and consequential environments and transition to training, most people think they don't need training. That's the worst part. And then the, the, the even worse part is most people are probably going to be pretty successful even though they're lousy leaders. I mean, the reason the shelves are full of leadership books, the reason you go on LinkedIn, you, you Google leadership, and there are going to be a thousand different companies with 10,000 different programs to each other. The reason is because most people are not great at leadership. And the reason is you can be reasonably successful in your life and be a lousy leader. There are plenty of companies out there that have abysmal leadership and they're making money. They, they would make more money if they had better leadership. They would grow faster. Um, but you have plenty of people out there that are uh, chewing up and spitting out good people day in and day out, and they're terrible leaders. And they're they're still taking home a paycheck. That's that's the worst. And it, it would you like to know the secret? What's the secret? The secret to great leadership. And this 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 really is true and it really is important. If you want to be a great leader, you need to be fascinated with two things. Because fascination is outward facing. You need to be fascinated with people and you need to be fascinated with the work they do. And it it doesn't matter if you're no good at people. And it doesn't matter if you don't really know the work. But think about the last time you were fascinated by something, by by a Rubik's Cube or, you know, trying to get a key off a key ring or, you know, trying to figure out some puzzle with your kid. The last time you were truly fascinated by something, you didn't care what the clock said. You didn't care if dinner came and went. You didn't care if someone was yelling at you to, you know, put that thing down and, and you know, come to bed. You were fascinated with that thing. So if you want to be a great leader, you need to have that level of fascination for the people around you so you can unpack them. And there's tons of great training out there that will show you how. You just need to be fascinated enough to do it, 
And the other thing you need to be fascinated with is the work. And it doesn't matter if you've never done the work. As long as you are fascinated by it and you're unpacking it, you'll learn it and you will put people where they're strong and you will build, curate, and lead a high-performance team. There's a lot of stuff out there where we're talking about find your passion and follow that. Find your why and follow that. And all of that is really good and important, but it's inward-facing. It is critical to your self-development, but it's a bad foundation for leadership because leadership is outward-facing. So passion for inward-facing self-development, fascination for outward-facing high-performance teams. You get fascinated with a group of people and what they're doing, you will make that group of people a high-performance team, and you can put them anywhere, and they will perform, I guarantee you. That's the secret. Sounds like a great secret. I know that a friend of mine, he does this exercise where he tells people to take one arm, I think it's the left arm, and reach as high as they can, and then um, after he tells them to reach as high as they can, he says, now reach higher. And the, the, the whole point is that you can actually, that, you know, people are can reach higher than they think they can. It's kind of the point that he's given because you tell them to reach as high as they can or to the highest. And then when he says reach higher, they still find that they can go higher than they first thought that they could expect to go and all of that. So that seems like a case of a tool to use to unlock potential. What are some of the ways that you try to unlock people's potential as well? Because I do find that a lot of times we as a society don't necessarily live up to our potential. So what are some of the tools and methods that you use to have people unlock their potential? Yeah, so I think for me it really starts with where leadership starts. Um, and, you know, a lot of people think leadership starts when you first get promoted, and, and it does, but it doesn't only start there. There are a lot of people out there that, you know, talk about, you know, lead from where you stand. You don't need a title to lead, and, and that's true, too, but it's not very useful. Um, I think leadership starts when you run out of bandwidth. Leadership starts when you can no longer do by yourself the volume of things you need to get done that you've, you've committed to do. It's, it's basically when you need other people to help, that's when you need to be a leader. And it doesn't matter if you're 35 and you just got promoted to be sales manager for the Western United States and you had a team of 15 people. You need to be a leader then. If you're nine years old and you need your brother or sister to help you clean the room, you need to be a leader. Um, and so I, I think of your friend and the reach higher. You know the way you can reach higher? is get a couple of friends and pick you up. But here's the key, and here's the problem, and here's the reason a lot of people don't want to do that or they're uncomfortable doing that, is when your friends come and they pick you up and you can reach real high, now what happens? Now you got to say thank you. And the reality, and this is a litmus test, it's a litmus test. If somebody helps you do something that you need to get done, it's one of your goals, and you don't feel gratitude, if you don't feel gratitude, you're not a leader. You're just not. And if, if you feel gratitude and you can't choke out the words thank you, and this is going to sound terrible, but I think you're probably not even a person. And, and that really is the challenge, is recognizing that you, you can't succeed as a solo. You name any person that has impacted your life. That person had relationships, they had people, people they relied on, people 
that relied on them. They had relationships, and they had people who helped them. And the great ones, every single great one said thank you. And, and so for me, that's key, is recognizing you can't do it alone. You shouldn't do it alone. You should ask for help, and you should be grateful. And that's how we are better. Hey, um, you know, leadership is definitely a big conversation. A lot of people have been, you know, going to leadership conferences and leadership things along those lines. What do you think are the, uh, you named some of them, but what do you think are some of the other traits of leadership, but also what do you think are some of the mistakes that leaders make other than the communication one and being grateful and everything? Because I definitely feel that sometimes leaders don't always give their uh underlings the support that they need all the time either. But I was wondering some of your thoughts about some of the mistakes that leaders make, and who do you consider some of the great leaders of our society? Boy, that's a, that's a great question. So um, I'll, I'll give you what I think the mistake is and then the structure and then uh, um, uh, try during that time to, uh, to really drill through to an example of, of great leadership. I think that okay. the, the, sing, the single biggest mistake that the leadership industry makes is being internal. You know, we talk about being a servant leader or an influence leader or a command and control leader or this type of leader or that type of leader. And, and my, my question is always, you know, pick your favorite professional coach, favorite foot, football coach, basketball coach, hockey coach, doesn't matter. Have you ever heard that coach say, I'm a servant coach? I'm an influence coach? No. You, you never hear them talk about who they are. And, and why is that? Because they know it's about the athlete and the game. And they know that any time they spend on anything other than the athlete and the game is going to be immediately evident because they're going to play a game and there's going to be a score next weekend. And so we're going to know how good that coach is. In business, we can spend all this time being a this kind of leader and a that kind of leader because we're probably going to make this quarter's numbers, and even if we don't, we can game the numbers and put it in a spreadsheet and blow it out for the next 24 months, and there's really no consequence. So in business – we don't have that immediate feedback, and so we think all this stuff matters. Find me a person who says, wow, I follow that guy because he's a servant leader. I follow her because she's an influence leader or a servant leader. They don't do that. People don't follow you because they like you, and this is important. People don't follow you because they like you. People follow you because you like them. Great athletes perform for great coaches because they know the coach values their contribution. And that takes me to the framework, right? And anyone who taps into my, my leadership training course, and, and you can, I mean, this is where it is. First promotion transition is my leadership training course, firstpromotiontransition.com, 10-week course. And what you're going to learn as you work through one exercise a week in 10 weeks is if you want to be a great leader, and you can do this today with the people around you, express gratitude, acknowledge skill, put people where they're strong, and take responsibility for the outcome. 
You don't have to be the leader. You can be somebody on the team. But when somebody does something for you, say thank you. When somebody does something that is remarkable, just tell them, wow, you're really good at that. Nudge people into roles where they're good at what they need to do. Put them where they're strong. That's Peter Drucker from 1965. And then take responsibility for the outcome. Dudes, I'm the coach. This is on me. And then you watch what happens around you. You know, you spend all your time saying, I'm a servant leader. Nobody really cares about you. The team cares about them, and they care about the, care about the team. And the great leaders will do that. The great leaders will do that. Um, so, my yeah, you got to give some examples I mean, I, I of always, some I of the great. I, I was, yeah. I mean, I, I, I unfortunately, I, I come back to um, old time military. I, I think, uh, I think Dwight Eisenhower was a great leader. Um, because he got hundreds of thousands of men and women to do things against their personal interests that were really important for the world. Um, I think, you know, if, if that's going to be the test, I'd put Medgar Evers in that, um, in that category. Um, you know, people willing to do things just because he thought it was a good idea. I, I, I definitely put him in that category. Um, I know as soon as I hang up, I'm going to have, I'm going to have a great one and I'm going to be, you know, kicking the wall here, but uh, I, I, I'd give you those two. I'd give you those two. Oh yeah. Those are some great leaders for sure. And everything. Definitely. I can see that. And definitely I can see where Metcalfers would be a great one. And definitely Eisenhower won as well. Um, how important do you think it is for leaders to uh, – uh, how can I put it? Um, how important do you feel education is into the leadership structure? Because, like, do you, think, do you think great leaders are made or are great leaders be- educated to become great leaders? I guess is the way that I would phrase the question. Yeah, and, that, and you know, that, that's a fantastic question. It's the, the whole, you know, do you, do you spring from the womb as a leader, and if you don't, can you never be a leader? And I – I, I sort of see it like uh, like drawing or painting. Um, if if you can see color and you can see light, you can take classes and you can learn how to paint. If, right. if you can't see light and shadows, you you can take those same classes, but but you're really never gonna be able to draw well or or paint well. So you have to start with it makes sense. I don't know if you remember that that uh, that movie, Goodwill Hunting, that Matt Damon mm-hmm. mini driver movie. And it, at at one point, uh, Matt Damon's character is talking about um, Mozart and how he could just play the piano because he looked at it and it made sense to him. You know, and that that for his character, you know, it's a box of wood and eighty-two keys, and it makes no sense at all. So. It's a great way of illustrating the point. If if people make sense to you, particularly if people frustrate you, if, if you don't care about people, they're not going to frustrate you. If you just don't understand why these people won't do whatever, you you understand that they can. So if people make sense to you, 
you can now start learning. You can learn perspectives. You can learn interactions. You can learn communication. You can learn gratitude. You can learn acknowledging skills. You can learn all this stuff. Nobody is a great leader out of the box. I mean, I was thrust into a leadership position, thrust. I applied for the job and I got hired at age 15, and it was a great experience for me, but I was, I was not a good leader. And over the years, sometimes I've done great, and sometimes I've done brutally badly at being a leader. And you learn. Um, but, but you can only learn if it makes sense to you. You can only get better if, if you understand what it is you're practicing. You know, so yeah, that makes a lot I think of you have to have both. It's so I'm I'm a Formula One fan, and you may not be a Formula One fan. I don't know if any of your um, listeners are, but there's a there's a driver, and I love this guy. His name's Daniel Ricciardo. He's an Australian, and he's supremely talented, and he's an average Formula One driver. And I'm gonna start getting hate mail from his fans, but he is supremely talented. He understands how to drive. And he is middle of the pack because he's not driven to improve. If I could talk to him, I would say, Daniel, you don't want to win. You expect to win. And since you expect to win, when you don't, you start looking for, you know, the tires and the car and the track and the weather. Now, you look at Lewis Hamilton, who's the best driver in the world. And he understands the car and the track and the tires and everything but he wants to be better every single race. And he just got his 100th pole position. The number two guy on the pole position list has 68, and Lewis Hamilton has 100. And it's because he's always looking to improve. He's always driven. He wants to be better every single time. And you got to have that hunger. got to have that hunger. you got to have that hunger for sure. You gotta have that hunger for sure. It's interesting that you say that because I was having a conversation on one of my other shows earlier today with a uh, it was one of our panels where we had multiple callers and one of them was a dear friend of mine who is a blues musician. But he was talking about uh, how when he was in a blues competition and the other person was almost of the opinion that they had it won and they definitely gave that attitude that they had it won and everything. And it was that attitude that probably caused them to finish in fifth. Place out of five contestants and everything because it was coming down to like you know the finals and everything and there was five people but they got the low score whereas uh, my friend John Shearer and his people got the high score because this guy was you know coming onto the stage with a beer in hand and an attitude almost as if he had already won before the contest had put it happened and what the point the job was making was that that probably really perturbed a lot of the judges because you could see a look at their faces as if they were like saying that you know he was basically being disrespectful to all of the opponents so it sounds like he probably could have used your leadership training <laughs> yeah that's uh that that's funny and it, it it sounds like your your friend is is marvelously talented i mean there's a there's a guy named joe bonamassa who's a, a blues uh-huh. guitarist um yes, that's what and yeah and he, he's 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 great. Um, it, he's an interesting interesting guy to watch. But the thing that you said that made me think of him is he's a really good guitar player. He is not extraordinarily talented, 
but he loves to play. And so he practiced and practiced and practiced and practiced and practiced. And now, and he's, he's played with everybody. Um, and he is now at that level because it's not what he does, it's who he is. And you can, <laughs> you're right, you can tell the posers. You can tell the posers right. and the hobbyists from, from the people for whom, I'll tell you another story. When my son was nine, he started playing video games. And I remember him playing this, this game called Spyro, this little cartoon dragon. And I remember just watching him, hanging out with him, being the dad. And he would get pounded and killed and pounded and killed. And he never got angry. And I remember mm-hmm. asking him one day, doesn't it bother you that you get pounded and you have to reset and you get pounded again? And he goes, well, yeah, Dad, I don't like it. But if I quit playing, I'm never going to get better. And I like playing. I'm like, okay, so I'm a moron and my eight-year-old kid's smarter than me. Isn't that really what it is? It's, it's the, the guy that understands that if it's worth doing a thing well, it's worth doing it badly. It's worth making all the mistakes. It's, it's worth making a horrible noise so that one day you can lift up a beautiful sound of the Lord. Definitely could agree with you on that and all of, and of what you're saying in that regard. I wanted to bring in, I think he's on the line with us and everything. So, um, um, David, if you could bring in Alan, who's I think calling from Raleigh, and I know he's also involved in business, but he's telling me he was on, and he's also involved in being an author and a speaker, and he's a veteran as well. So I'm sure that he's fascinated by some of what we've been talking about. So definitely he's a leader as well. So definitely hopefully he's on the line and everything. So, Alan, are you with us? I am with you guys, Mark. Thank you. Coach, tell us a little bit. We've got some great guests and everything. Like I said, we've been talking to Scott, who has definitely done some great work as an FBI agent and a prosecutor and done this training of high-performance team builders. But it sounds like you're doing some amazing work as well, and I'd love to hear about your book as well as some of the things that you're doing that are similar to what Scott's got going on as well, because it seems like you also are a proponent of great leadership skills. Yes, yes. Um, first and foremost, thank you guys for having me on here. Uh, my name is Alan Simmons, uh, a guy from Somerville, South Carolina, small town near Charleston, uh, South Carolina. I, um, I, I am an author. I'm a Marine veteran, uh, served in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, a lot of my story comes from uh, war uh, because I was in an RPG explosion in Afghanistan, and uh, I was I stood next to a, a IED bomb in Afghanistan that didn't explode. And, uh, you know, um, after battling with PTSD and trauma, I ended up searching for my purpose outside of trauma. And, you know, I I was able to rise with God on that. You know, God got me through Afghanistan. God actually spoke to me (laughs) in Afghanistan. I tell this story to people a lot. Like I was standing in the desert and I heard a voice speak to me and said, look by your foot. And when I looked by my foot, there was a haystack, and it said, lift up the haystack. So I lift up the haystack, and there's a pressure plate, or a pressure cooker, sorry, it's a a propane tank bomb under the haystack, and it had a cell phone strapped on top of it with 12 9-volt batteries and wires. And on that day, you know, I, I found out what war really was, 
Um, and and after coming back to the stateside after my uh, RPG explosion and battling with PTSD and anxiety, I decided to write poetry. Uh, poetry started showing me what was inside of me. It, so, it showed me the darkest parts of me. It showed me why I was feeling so isolated in a world with many people. Um, it showed me why I was going to addictions and alcohol and pornography, you know. So I battled with all of those things and uh, started working with the youth, uh, kids who went through traumatic experiences. They saw their mother and dad killed in front of them. Some kids were raped and molested. Um, so I started a nonprofit called Living Love where I work with at-risk youth and uh, homeless veterans and veterans with traumatic experiences and um and from there I started working with professionals doing brunch with ties and heels and I would get people together and I would talk about purpose. And from there I started a podcast called The Purpose Pod where I interview uh professionals, NFL players, actresses, uh singers, authors, uh veterans, anybody you could think of that is serving a purpose, I've done it with them. So uh that's the synopsis of, you know, who I am, a summary of who I am right there. Yeah, definitely. I appreciate that. And I looked at it from both of you, um, both you and Scott. What do you think of when you think of the word purpose? Because, like I said, we oftentimes hear people talk about that even in leadership. So I'd love to hear both of you as to what you feel is the definition. So I guess I'll start with you, Alan, but I would love to hear from Scott as well what the definition of purpose is to you. Because I think sometimes we oftentimes hear those words used even in leadership conversations, but I don't know that everybody is always aware of what that actually means. That's a that's a good question, you know, and I, I've I've been studying purpose for a while and to define it would be to for me to put it in a box. But what I will say is I, I did a brunch one day and I brought a screwdriver with me <laughs> and I, I was in a room full of thirty guys and I said, What is this? It said a screwdriver. I was like, Okay, well I, I wanna divide you up into teams and I want you guys to come up with different ways to use the screwdriver. And so we came up with about two hundred and fifty different ways to use a screwdriver. And I said, well, that's good. Now, what was the original purpose intent for the screwdriver? You know, we all know to screw and unscrew. But if there's 250 other ways to use the screwdriver, what does that say about us? So when it comes to leadership and how I've learned to lead is that people will serve different purposes in different roles. You know, one minute you're a servant and the next minute you're a leader. You know, and we have to learn how to exercise our innate gifts and abilities in those roles, I and mean, we have things that we're naturally good at, and those things will serve a purpose, which is uh, a tool to be used for something good. Yeah, definitely. Scott, what are your thoughts about that, the whole concept of purpose, and you're hearing what Alan is saying, and I know he oftentimes talks about how he's found purpose in inspiring others who are looking for their purpose. So I just wanted your thoughts about purpose and its role within uh, the whole leadership conversation. Man, Alan, I I know we just met, but you're a hard act to follow, my friend. That's um, <laughs> just a, like, listening to you. I mean, I, I you're 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 making me take a diff, a, a bit of a different tack, but it, here goes. It's um, I always think of purpose in terms of fulfillment, um, and it's yeah, I, I think you need you need the concreteness of exercises like the like the one Alan was doing with the, the screwdriver because it, it has to be practical to be useful. It can't be esoteric. But what's what's the thing that feeds your soul? Um, what's the thing that, even if it doesn't put food on your table or clothes on your back, you're still going to do 
because it's the right thing to do because it contributes to who and what you are. That's mm-hmm. what I'm thinking of, and and that's why I use that that word fulfillment. Now, you know, you you got to put food on the table, you got to put clothes on your back, you gotta you gotta earn a living, um, in in some way, um, because if you if you if you don't support yourself, you have nothing to give. But in that mix, in the complexity of, of human life, what is it that well and truly matters to you? What fulfills you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? So that's, that's when I think of purpose. Why am I getting up? What fulfills me as a person? Why am I doing this? Hmm. Yeah, definitely. I agree with you on that. Definitely, that's something that's very important, and all of that couldn't agree with you more. Um, Alan, if you could, and I don't know if you got any, I'm going to put you on the spot, but if you got any of your poems, I'm sure we'd love to hear that. And I also want to bring another person in that's about purpose as well, because I think that I've got Rico that's given a call, and Rico's actually released a recent gospel album, so I know that he's very much about that and everything. But definitely, if you got a work of your poems, and I know that you've put out this collection called Can I Speak? I'm sure we would love to hear it if you've got some that are available for us to hear. Yeah, definitely. I could do a, I could do a quick one. Um, here it goes. <laughs> it's called Failure. Don't let failure imprison your mind, bring scoliosis to your spine, and leave you bent. You were born to be great. Set aside to be great. Your every breath is more precious than diamonds and pearls. Step out from this world and take a leap into your destiny. Look into the mirror and see what others cannot. You are royalty. Your loyalty should be shown by how much you have grown. Seeds of failure and success have both been sown, but please don't step down from your throne. Keep marching. Keep moving. You are almost home. Did anyone hear your dreams and said that it had no meaning? Did anyone hear your story and and instructed you to stop dreaming? If so, let them go. Let them watch God take you from the valley into your promised land. Take my hand as I remove you from this quicksand. Fly with me. Gather your feathers, lift up your head, and aim to the stars with me. Stretch and reach the heights with me. Unbreakable people will be tested by pressures that measure their durability. Do you believe in your abilities? Do you believe in God's ability? You are unbreakable. Yeah, no doubt about that and everything. Great poem, definitely a powerful poem. Uh, if we could, I'd love to hear uh, you bring in uh, Dean Rico, because like I said, I know that Rico is going to be giving a call, and he's actually got a powerful uh, gospel album that he's been working on for a while, and I understand that it's finally been released, so we want to hear about that and what his thoughts are about leadership as well, because we know that even within gospel music and everything, that that's very important, and I know that the new album is called It's Supposed to Be. So, Rico, are you with us? Yes, I'm here. So tell the folks about the album and about how you came about doing it and everything, because definitely I do know that it was in, and we've talked before, that you are also one that is a fan of leadership and leadership abilities and all of that. So definitely I'd love to hear you talk about your new album and also how it ties in to the concept of leadership and us being leaders in our community. Okay. Um, As you we, as you alluded to, Mark, um, this has been in the works for um, quite some time. Uh, the last time we talked, I actually had um, released a single, um, and 
from that point on, I began to uh, create the the album. Um, it took longer than I expected because of you know when you're doing when you're an independent artist, you're doing everything yourself. So um, you you live and you learn. Uh, but I, I believe that this project is going to empower um, not just uh, believers of of Christ, but uh, people that are looking for inspiration. Um, one of my songs uh, on the album, uh, Keep Keep Your Head Up, is basically talking about persevering uh, and knowing what your purpose is, walking in purpose. And, I, you know, I also teach. I teach uh, in, at the high school level, and that's one of the things that I always tell my students, uh, finding your purpose. And it's not all about the money because you can have – you can have a job that makes a lot of money, but it, it, it does not serve your purpose, and you will, you will find yourself frustrated. So always try to find your purpose. So the, that, the album uh, is, is about empowering and, and inspiring people. Yeah, definitely. The album itself is about inspiring and motivating people and all of that. Um, Alan, you have also got a line of clothing, so if you would talk to us about that as well, because you also fall within that entrepreneurial spirit, and actually Scott as well. But definitely I'd love to give you share a little bit about your journey with your clothing line, which also is about using the clothing to motivate people because it's even got motivational in the title. Yeah, right, exactly. Uh, I, I started a, a brand called Persist Motivational Clothing, and my motto is never stop, never quit, repeat. I, I, and the repeat is you have to never stop and never quit. <laughs> and uh, it's all about persistence, right, like like we were saying. Like persistence is the thing that as a, as a traumatic war veteran, a veteran with PTSD, persistence is something that was instilled in me, but after coming from war, I dropped out of college, you know, um, after coming from war, I didn't think I was a man. I wasn't good enough for the world. And, you know, I, I got tired of quitting. I got tired of wondering what if, what if I would have started this? What if I would have did this? So I started uh persist motivational clothing and the simple model of never stop, never quit. Repeat has been used by so many people, people battling cancer people battling tra trauma, people trying to figure out who they are. They've been wearing this brand, uh, and it's been motivating people. And I use it when I talk to the youth. You know, it's, hey, never stop, never quit, repeat. No matter what obstacles you face, no matter how life looks, never stop, never quit, repeat. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Hey, Scott, and then I want to get to Rico as well. How important is persistence even in your leadership training? Because it does seem to me that that is a common theme along with purpose that we're hearing within our leaders is that a lot of times they are persistent. I mean, how many times have we heard about people that uh, were defeated that first time but they kept being persistent and they got to their goals and all of that? We can even argue that that's what happened with, um, and I'm not a fan of the one that I'm getting to mention first, but I'm a fan of the second one. But we can definitely argue that that's what happened in the case of both of our past two presidents because they both had run or at least talked about running in the past and definitely Biden had run in the past and everything. But what is your thoughts about persistence and its importance within leadership? I, I think persistence is the most important thing in life. And, uh, and I'll, I'll tell you, um, a story about my son, who's the mixed martial arts fighter. Um, he uh, he just turned pro right before 
Christmas, um, and he he uh, fought for a uh, a local amateur promotion called Triton Fights up in uh, Long Island before then. And if you uh, if you go uh, just onto YouTube, uh, you'll be able to find a video that's uh, top five knockouts for Triton Fights, top five knockouts for 2019, 2020. Um, and uh, I actually did a blog post on this. So if you go to uh, glenhaveninternational.com, go to the blog posts, there's a, a post on resilience. Um, and, and it's about my boy. He's He appears on this. It's, it's five knockouts, and he appears twice. Um, the number three knockout, he gets knocked out. He gets caught, he's down, and he's pounded. And then two fights later, he's the number one on this highlight reel, and he gives the knockout. And he hit this guy so hard, and the guy went down so fast that my son tripped on his legs, and that allowed the referee to save this kid from getting pounded by my son. But what they don't tell you is what happened between getting knocked out and six months later when he gave the knockout. He got knocked out. He ended up in the hospital, and he was down for a couple of days, and he was really asking himself, do I do this or do I not? He didn't, he didn't bounce up. He didn't respond quickly. He thought about it. He made a considered decision, and he got up with purpose, and he went back to training, and he won his next fight, fight of the night, and then the following fight, was the number one on this highlight reel. And I always told my kids, it's not the person who gets knocked down. It's the person who gets up that you have to look at. And the person who gets up slowly is who you have to really look at because they're the ones who chose to get up. And Alan, I hear that in your voice, man. Never met you, but really impressive, your story. You got up slow, and you got up with purpose. And that yeah. I, it gives me a chill, that type of resilience. People don't do hard things because things are hard and people quit. You want to do anything in this world? All you got to do is get up. Mm-hmm. All you got to do is get up. So there you yeah. go. That's what I think. That's real true. Rico, how important has persistence been for you? I know that we talked before and you definitely mentioned that you had to definitely tackle that media monster that we call commercial radio, and they're not always the most supportive people in the world, but definitely wondering how important persistence has been in your own career and in even your getting this album out. I mean, you put out an album in the middle of a pandemic. Right. Uh, yes, um the monster of media. Um, one thing that I have found out that, um, and you know, it, it is what it is. Um, when you're not a major artist on a major label, and they don't know you, um, they are they are more quick to dismiss you. Um, I have gotten a lot of airplay from um, radio stations that really. Uh, want to see the independent artists uh, thrive, and they want to level. They want it to have a level playing field for everybody. Um, and I've been blessed to be have been connected to people that really saw saw stuff in me and wanted to um, give me a platform. 
But on the same token, I've also ran into the most of the time it's the commercial media that have uh, the, the conglomerate radio stations. Um, they don't cater; they cater to the major artists, and the, the independent artists is uh, is not as an afterthought. Um, so I, I I have had to persevere, and I've had a lot of uh, I've had a lot of no's. I've had a lot of people. Um, did not believe, but I, I believed in myself, and I know what God had uh, placed in me, and I know, um, and I, I believed in that, and so I just kept driving on, and, you know, I had a lot of people that, that you know, they said, I like the music, but you don't fit, um, okay, that's fine, so I may, I'll create my own lane, and that's what I had, that's, that's what I've had to do thus far, and I, it's been, it's, you know, it's, it's a it's a little slow process. It's a, it's a process, uh, but you know you got to embrace the process. So that's what I've I've accepted to embrace the process. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I know you talked about the importance of faith and the importance of uh, to some people may call that spirituality or whatever. And I think all of y'all have kind of alluded to it. But I'm gonna start with Alan. But I'd love to hear from all of y'all that importance of that um, connection to a higher power and everything to your own message. Because um, the reason I'm starting with you, Alan, is because you've had the pleasure of interviewing a lot of um, athletes, a lot of entertainers, and I'm sure that they've given you their secrets to leadership and uh, their secrets to success. And I'm imagining that the vast majority of them having a connection to the Most High is probably one of their keys to success. But what are some of the other keys to success? And am I correct that would you say that the vast majority having some sort of connection to something beyond them is the reason for their success, whether it's somebody in the basketball field or somebody that was a actress or a singer? Yes, definitely, um, Mark. And, you know, I interviewed an actress, Maya Stoyan. She was in Grey Anatomy. She was in Castle and um, a couple of other movies. Uh, and she talked about gratitude. And I believe that everyone should have a sense of gratitude for their life. You know, we all look at what we don't have a lot of times. We look at where, you know, like Rico, you know, like he's going, he's building up his empire by himself and he's facing these obstacles. And But he has this sense of gratitude, being thankful for what he has, the gift inside of him, you know. So gratitude was like one of my biggest ones that I really took away. And, you know, she wasn't, let's say, a believer of faith, but she was more about living a life of gratitude. And I think that is bigger than ourselves because the human is so selfish in a way well, we're, we're, where we refuse to see the simple things such as breathing, such as not dying from COVID, you know, these things will, will give us fuel for, for where we're going. And, you know, for me, I believe that God has a purpose for each and every one of us. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, for I know the plans that I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope in the future, you know, and that plan isn't just for the Christian, isn't just, you know, for the person that goes to church every Sunday. That plan is for every person that has life in their, in their body, you know? So um, a lot of people, NFL players, James Bradbury from the Carolina Panthers who's now with the Giants, uh, Khalil Kareem, he's with the Cincinnati Bengals. These guys had that, that greater sense of, of belonging, you know, belonging to something greater than themselves was pushing forward. 
Yep. Definitely, what are your thoughts, Scott? You've worked with some of the top corporate leaders, and like I said, you've definitely done work with the military, and you've even had to deal with those spies and everything. And, of course, you know, spies, when we think of spies, we think of James Bond and everything. But what are your thoughts about that in terms of uh, what is that driving for us, whether it's faith or whether it's, as Alan said, gratitude, or maybe there's another one that you want to add? I'm with Alan on this one. It's it's gratitude, and it, you know I'm not I'm not a religious man, but I am a student of history. I mean, I was raised in a Congregational church. I was baptized in a Baptist church, married a Catholic, um, and uh, I've uh, you know to get through to get through university, I had to read some of the great religions, and um, the the universal thing that you see, regardless of of how you practice is is giving thanks, you know, and it can be as simple as we stop and we give thanks for the meal, we give thanks for the opportunity to compete, we give, you know, thanks that, uh, you know, we won the game, we got the job, we landed the contract. Um, and I think it almost doesn't matter if you're communicating directly to a higher power or if you're communicating to yourself um, that it it sets you on a path for a better life. Um, because if you're grateful, it makes it easier for you to give. Um, and so, yeah, gratitude, relationships. Um, nobody likes a selfish person. <laughs> it really is that simple. So it's my long-winded way of saying I agree with Alan. Yep, definitely. Rico, what is your thoughts? I mean, you definitely alluded to faith and gratitude is very important, but you are also part of the unsung heroes, or they're not unsung anymore, but definitely the heroes of the uh, pandemic, which is not just our frontline workers of nurses and doctors, but also the teachers, because many of y'all had to learn how to teach in new forms and new ways, but still keep the uh, youth engaged, whether it was doing it online or a number of other ways. So what are some of the lessons that you even tried to pass on to your students uh, when you're teaching them music? Because as I recall, you're a music teacher and a vision to having some other courses as well. So definitely, what are some of the lessons that you try to pass on to your students, and what are some of the things that you would add to maybe gratitude and faith as being those grounding forces? Well, I, I always um, always remind my students, because young people, and I teach at the high school level, sometimes they they forget that, being grateful, uh, especially in the pandemic uh, you you look around and you see people uh, dying from the COVID virus, and I always remind them: be thankful and be grateful that you're still here because somebody uh, got infected with the virus and they're in the hospital and their parents or whoever they their loved ones can't be near them, and they have to suffer this this journey by themselves, and some don't make it. Um, and don't worry about what you don't have. Worry about what you do have. You have your family. You have, you know, you have activity of your limbs. You, you can see, you know, you can breathe, you know, and I always remind them of that because, like I said, sometimes high school students and even young, young adults, uh, they feel like they're invincible and it, it can't happen to them. But the very moment you you feel that way, it can happen to you. So I, I just I just try to you know 
do that. And then with the with the teaching during the pandemic, it's been it's been really tough. Um, initially, um, as when we came back this year, um, we were doing a hybrid two days a week. You know, A B schedule, and that's in music. That's kind of hard because you know. If you don't, if you're not able to create good practice habits, students when they get home for the next three days, um, they they don't they're not as diligent, and then it's like starting all over again. Uh, we recently went to five days a week um, uh, in March, right before uh, right before uh, Easter break was the first week of April, uh, and that's been going well. I, I've seen my students. Uh, they're uh, the ones that are that are still uh, that have come back face to face. I've seen their their uh, their countenance. You know, is different. They're 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 happy, um, and they feel they feel like they have a chance. Uh, and I always talk to my students and ask them, you know, how are you feeling? Because um, the kids in high school. Uh, school-age uh, kids, period, but more so in high school and in, in, in the college, um, it has the pandemic has really affected them socially, and because a lot of we don't know, we, we're learning even more about the about the uh, COVID virus, and a lot of parents uh, here were were very very cautious, and a lot of the kids have not seen family or friends since last March. So you you're talking about. Um, the only time they go out is they they're with their parents and they're going to the grocery store and they're coming back home and they're in the house and that has affected them and now that we're back in in school face to face those students have had an opportunity to come back to school and you you have seen um you have seen them um perk up and and grow uh, because the the we had a lot of students that were very depressed and had severe anxiety um, and uh, they're they're getting help for that, and I always try to constantly talk and encourage them, you know, because they need that. Yeah, definitely. I was actually watching a documentary that that long ago um, for actually maybe entering into a documentary festival that I'm part of and everything. But definitely, I was watching the documentary, and part of what the documentary talked about was what you just said. It's talking about their youth, and it was actually given a good report on our youth in the sense of them taking over uh, leadership and definitely being true leaders on a lot of very important issues, whether that's issues around tolerance, whether that's issues around gender, around race, or even around climate or a number of other things. But one of the negative aspects of what they talked about was what you just talked about, which is that whole like culture where they are so caught up in wanting to be liked and definitely so, you know, swipe and right, swipe and right, or whatever that they may do in um, Tinder or in some of the other out platforms that are out there and everything. But I was just wondering if all of y'all could talk about that, the role of leadership within our youth, because I have actually been impressed with the way that a lot of our young people are taking a leadership role in society on a number of issues. But I am, on the flip side of that, concerned about how it might be impacting their mental health with their being so caught up in the whole like culture and having to do things to garner likes, garner fans, garner whatever they may be wanting in that regard. So I guess I'll start with you, Scott, and work my way around the bin. But what are your thoughts about our 
young folks as leaders, and do you have that same concern about maybe them getting caught up in some of this whole light culture? Oh, yeah, I do, and it's um, it, it's challenging because they're teenagers and they're and they're trying to figure it out, and uh, a lot of times, you know, hearing from Gramps over here in the corner isn't really what they want to hear from, but my my suggestion, my recommendation, particularly if there's a kid struggling with being unpopular or not being liked, and then the the bottom line for all of us is really simple. We all want to be liked. So so start that way. You know, see what happens if you start liking other people. And I don't mean hitting the like button on your phone. I mean as you're interacting with somebody you know, not saying I like you, but behaving in a way that indicates that you like them. That's the way people respond, and it translates directly into leadership. People don't follow you because they like you. People follow you, and by follow I mean they do what you need them to do, not what they want to do. People follow you if they know you like them. And I tell you a story of a guy in a city who needs directions and he sees another fellow on the corner and he goes up and he knows he, excuse me sir sorry to bother you you kind of look like my favorite uncle I just love that guy hey would you would you mind telling me how to get to this address what's the guy going to do he's probably going to give him directions but if that same guy walks up and goes excuse me sir I'm sorry to bother you um you remind me of my uncle, and that guy was the meanest guy I ever knew, and I always hated him. Hey, could, could you give me the directions for this uh, location? What do you think he's going to do? You just told him you don't like him. He's not going to help yeah. you. Yeah. So it, it, it seems stupid, right? But the, the, the point is, if you want to receive, you need to give. If you want friends, be a friend. And so... Really hard to do for an adult, much harder to do with a teenager, but it will help them get control. Really yeah, that makes sense. Control. I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm prepared to be disabused of my notions and persuaded on this, but that's where I am. No, that makes sense. Uh, Rico, and I had alluded to it earlier, and I know there's been definitely stuff around Elizabeth City and other places, but what is your thoughts about our young people as leaders? Because I have seen them definitely take the mantle of wanting to deal with issues. I would argue that they may be doing it as great, if not better, than some of the leaders of, say, my dad's generation, which would have been the uh, 60s in the sense of the civil rights great things that were going on in the 50s and the 60s and all of that. But I was wondering what your thoughts are, because I'm thinking and some of our young people are tired of waiting for us folks that are in that 50, 60, 70, 80 crowds to solve the problems of the world, and they're ready to tackle the problems themselves. I'm sure you're even seeing that with your students, and I'm actually thinking that this may be one of the most tolerant generations of all times as well. But I'm just wondering your thoughts. It's funny you ask that. I, I had um... – I I I had a had a discussion. I always before I get into my lesson, my musical lesson, I always uh, try to find you know gauge what what the students are thinking because I, I I realize this is the this is the prime opportunity for them to um, be 
be leaders. And I asked them, um, matter of fact, I asked them this past Friday, I asked them about how do you feel about the mantle being passed to you and are you, do you think you're ready for that? And are you preparing yourself um, for that? And it, it was it was it was it was awesome to hear them express uh, their, their their desire to 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 accept the mantle. They know that they there's more to learn about life and things like that. But they're willing to uh, they're willing to learn. And I always remind them. Um, don't uh, be, uh, don't dismiss wise counsel. Uh, we have, you know, sometimes teenagers, they get to the point they think they know everything. And, you know, they forget that there was somebody, you know, there's nothing new done under the sun. It's been done before. So why not uh, glean off of people that, are, that, have, that have journeyed where you're about to go? So I always encourage them to be lifelong learners always encourage them to connect with people that are going to to uh, edify you and build you instead of take away from you. So um, my students, especially my uh, my juniors and seniors, they're very they're, – they understand the climate. They understand what's going on, and they understand that they're – the importance of them under, doing what they need to do to prepare to accept the mantle. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Alan, you're not that far removed from the high school years. It was only back in 2007 that you graduated from high school, so that was like some 14 years ago. So definitely you fall in that um, early 30s category and all of that. Mm -hmm. So that being said, I know that sometimes um, even in the, the leadership conversation, we don't always give enough respect toward the young leaders. I know I've actually got friends of mine that are not the biggest fans of the squad because they feel that AOC and the rest of the squad have not had a chance to go through the system, to go through the whole leadership training program, if that's what you want to call it and everything, and that they are stepping out way before their time and that they haven't had the chance to earn their stripes, to use that kind of uh, analogy and everything. What is your answer to those folks that are like that, those folks that are seeing somebody that's in their 30s or their, uh, like, because you would be in that same age range, similar to what mm -hmm. AOC is. I think she's in her late 20s and everything. But what is your answer to folks that are seeing a leader like you and saying that you haven't earned enough stripes and all of that? Mm. I love that question because <laughs> – that's how I've been feeling for the last ten years. You know, um, you know, my I I have this big desire to love people. You know, I think as a leader, that's one of the biggest things that separates a great leader from a good leader is the ability to love. And there's a lot of people with head knowledge, but not enough heart knowledge. And mm -hmm. you know, we all, especially the youth, like Rico was saying, like there those students have learned a lot throughout this whole period of COVID. You know, but someone like me, I'm 32 years old, and I lead people, but I don't have the accreditation. Like, I haven't been, you know, I don't have the stripes, so-called, um, but I have it on the streets. You know, I have it when it comes to PTSD and suicidal thoughts. I have it when it comes to connecting with people outside of your race and your religion. You know, I, I have that ability to connect with people, um, and it's because I have learned to first lead myself. You know, so for people who think that, you know, these people haven't earned their stripes or we haven't earned our stripes, 
I believe that it'll be a time for them to look within themselves and say, well, what haven't I given to them so that they can earn their stripes? Because a lot of people will complain about the younger generation, but they won't maintain the younger generation. They won't invest into the younger generation. They'll just say, well, those kids can't get right. They'll never get right. You know, and they're always doing this, and the kids are just so reckless. But are you taking the time to invest into the minds of the youth? You know, so I had a, a spoke at UNC Charlotte, my alma mater. I spoke there virtually to the leadership team, to a bunch of uh, student leaders, and my my discussion was about leading yourself because everyone goes social media now. You want thousands and thousands of followers. You want thousands of followers. Everybody wants to be a leader, but you have to first lead yourself. You have to first love yourself. You have to first challenge yourself. And while you're while you're leading yourself, you find that other people are following you. Like I've built a network of people, more than three thousand people over the last two years, because I have invested inside of myself. Like they're like Alan is being transparent, he's being authentic, he's loving everyone the same, and people will follow. So I think everyone deserves a chance, and some people have to step aside. You know, like we're not meant to lead the rest of our life. You know, we're meant to lead and grow leaders. Miles Monroe said, if I die, and he passed away, Miles Monroe said, if I die and what I have built dies with me, I did nothing. You know, so I believe that as leaders, we're supposed to be training, teaching, going to the youth and showing them, hey, this is how you handle your finances. Hey, your mental health is so important. You know, so, um, and that's that's just what I, I believe and that's what I'm doing. No, you're definitely doing great work in that, and I can definitely hear the passion in your voice and everything. Scott, the ironic thing, and like I said, I'm in my late 50s, and I know that you're a little bit older than everything, but not much older. But definitely the ironic thing is that I would argue that my dad heard the same thing from his mother and father, which would have been my grandparents. I know that I probably heard it, or at least my generation heard it, from folks that are in my dad's generation. So it seems like we have this conversation every generation. So how do we get past this where we both understand that the youth can bring wisdom and also honor the wisdom from those that have gone through the trials and the tribulations? So what is your thoughts about how we can definitely get the respect on both sides? Yeah, I just, you know, I'm going to start off by saying I, I really agree with Alan again. I mean, um, I, I I hear the passion and I I hear the eloquence and I think you're getting on. Um, I'm reminded of George Santayana, I think, who said, you know, if you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it. Um, and you know, the history's there. All you got to do is read it and and understand it and make a commitment not to repeat it. Um, but you know, with with all that in the in the pot, and we're stirring it around trying to make this meal. Um, is the the generational battle always gets me um, because you know we're, we're all sitting around talking about other generations and we might as well be talking about ourselves, right? So I'm I'm not too much older than you. I'm I'm 59, but I'm I'm an actual legitimate baby boomer, and. A lot of people forget that the baby boomers were the original me generation. I mean, hate Ashbury's protests in the 60s, that's, that's the baby boom generation. And I hear so many baby boomers complain about millennials being selfish, and I just roll my eyes. and like, no, millennials are, are just like baby boomers. And, and the reality of it is 
if you have a kid who comes to you and says, you're not a good leader, why should I do what you say? You know, you're my teacher, but you're not good enough. You're my boss, but you're not good enough. You know, you're my dad. Why should I listen to you? What are they doing? They're holding you accountable to a high standard. You should be grateful for that. You know, if if they think you're not good enough, that's the beginning of the conversation, not the end. And And I've always told my kids, your job is to be better than me. My job is to set that bar as high as I possibly can. But it's it, just like the quote that Alan said, you know, if, if what you do dies with you, you've done nothing. If my kids aren't better than me, my life has been wasted. And that's, that's their, their job in my book. Their actual job is whatever, thing, whatever they think the highest and best use of their life is. But, you know, when you're, when you're pointing your finger because your plans fell through, there's three more fingers pointing back at you. Um, and, and I think all of us got to be careful with that. We really do. Um, and so for me, I say young people go. If, if you want to be responsible for this, and I think one of the keys to leadership is the willing acceptance of responsibility. It's not I want to be in charge. It's I'll get it done. And the kid in the back of the room that nobody else likes whose hand is always in the air volunteering for stuff, there's your leader. And, and my advice is cut them loose, see what they do. Cut them loose yeah. and see who they can get to come with them. They will surprise you, and they'll surprise themselves. So, no, no doubt about that. Everything we actually got about it, and we should be hearing that bell any minute now, heading into the uh, ten minute mark. But earlier, when Scott was the first one on, we were talking about leadership, and I would love to hear both of yours, meaning Alan and Rico's definition of what leadership means to them, and it may even correlate with some of what Scott was saying earlier. But when you hear the word leader, um, Alan, and um, actually I'm going to try to see if I can get Alan to do another point somewhere within his answer, so if he wants to do it, now that's cool. And if Rico wants to give us some of his lyrics, that would be cool as well. But, Alan, when you hear the word lyric, I mean leadership, what does that mean to you, and what are some of the two great leaders in society in your mind? I'd love to hear some of the people that you consider great leaders in our society. Ooh, that's tough. <laughs> no, but uh, leadership, when I hear leadership, I see someone who is one willing to take that military approach to lead down your life to another. It's biblical in his, in his military. A leader will sacrifice everything for the sake of those that are under them. They will sacrifice their life, their energy, their time. You know, like Scott was saying, that kid that raises their hand every time someone asks, you know, let them loose. So leaders are people who see themselves in others. Like when I look at other people, no matter if they're black, white, Buddhist, Muslim, Christian, I see myself inside of them. I see that person that was born a child. I see that person that has opportunity at their, at their feet, you know. And as a leader, I believe that great leaders learn to see themselves in other people so that they have grace. They have mercy. They have love and kindness. And all of those things, the leader will find himself not doing anything because the workers would want to, to make their leader happy. You know, um, you ever been to a job where you were just excited to go to work? You were excited to put in work because your leader made you feel special, made you feel like you were seen? You know, and that's how I like to make people feel. People feel seen 
when they're with me. Um, and my, my, my two greatest leaders, I would say one is my wife. I'm sorry, there y'all don't know her, but she's my wife. My wife is my, my one greatest leader because she's taught me patience and humility. You know, she's taught me through her silence. You know, she's taught me to how to sacrifice. Um, and so I would say her, and I would say my next one, oh, man, my next one, I would have to go with Les Brown. <laughs> I don't know if y'all know Les Brown. Yeah. But um, Les Brown, is, he, does a, he, he does a lot of great work in his speaking, and he, he has this sense of uniqueness in his approach. So I don't look at leaders that, oh, who's the buffest? Who's the meanest? Who's the toughest? Who's the most sincere? Who's the most passionate? Passionate leaders rule the world. You know, if I could get you guys to go make your bed in the morning, because I'm like, guys, when you wake up in the morning, the way you make your bed is the way you'll live the rest of your life. You guys will probably wake up in the morning and start folding it military style, you know? So, like, when you have leaders like Miles Monroe, people like my wife, who are silent, gentle, kind, they teach you those things through their actions. Leaders lead by their actions. So, yeah. Definitely. Oh, and you and if you – yes. So I'll give you, I'll give you another one. Um, this is one – it's a little warlike, so here we go. <laughs> uh, bombs over Baghdad. Boom. Bombs over Afghanistan. Boom. How did I get into this? As I reflect over my life, I remember a time when I could not picture this. Death. Death is everywhere. Wherever there is war, death follows in it is everywhere. Reflection, mirror, mirror on the wall. Who am I after Twin Towers fall? I am no longer disguised in camouflage desert gear. I'm clicking my heels at attention, praying for God to take me out of here. These combat scars mark my soul. Bullet rounds were shot to part my body from my soul. I just can't recognize who I am. My God, I can't even recognize whose I am. IEDs and RPGs. Leave my brothers and sisters overseas. Death tornadoes through the desert valleys. We've lost so many brothers and sisters. Body bags. These dead bodies can't help me. Body bags leave the war, and I know one thing for sure, that one of those bags had my name on it. Who am I? These wars have us asking questions like, who am I? What am I? Why did I become this way? I stand here mesmerized that my body didn't comply when the RPG landed a few feet next to me. My body went somewhere in the air, or maybe the blast pushed me against the surface of the earth. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how I got to this place where my ears are ringing like a smoke detector. My heartbeat singing loudly, slowly fading into a whisper. I'm trying to paint this picture. I want you to see this as if you were standing next to me. Isn't it amazing by God's amazing grace that you all can stand next to me? And I'll stop right there, but that's a, that's part of my poem called Bones of a Bad Dad. Wow. Powerful poem, and I know that folks will be trying to catch the rest of it and hearing the full version, but definitely a very powerful poem that gives that whole feeling of what's going on in the, those war environments and all of that. Rico, mm-hmm. I'd ask that same question to you, which is definitely what does leadership mean to you and who some of those great leaders are in your life? And like uh, Alan said, they might be people that are directly connected to you, whether that's in his case his wife or maybe in some cases his people's parents, because I know that I consider both of my parents to be some of the leaders that I look up to and all of that. But definitely I'd love to hear your definition of what leadership is as well as to who some of the leaders are in your life. And if you've got uh, some of the lyrics, I know it's different than a song, but if you've got some of the lyrics that you want to share, this is your opportunity to do that as well. Okay. 
Um, leadership to me is you do it by word and deed. You can you can show people. Um, you can show them better than you can tell them. You can tell somebody all the time, and I just use my analogy in the classroom. Um, I could tell students how to do some something, uh, but if they don't understand it, then it's my job to demonstrate. And once I demonstrate it, they get a greater understanding. A lot of students, they they are kinesthetic learners. They learn by doing. They, uh, you know, in my years of teaching, excuse me, most of my students have been that way. I, I rarely had students that were visual or audio primarily. Most of them, they had to do it, and it and it made sense to them. Um, I, I would have to agree with the uh, brother. My wife is a great leader. Um, I just, you know, she's she's an, uh, an administrator at the com- at a community college level, and I just see how she interacts with uh, people in uh, local government um, because they do a lot of partnership with the, with the county, and how she just moves. And it's just I'm just an awesome times man, and and I've likewise learned a lot about things that the business and the, and the political side. You know stuff that I don't really care care for too much as it relates to that, but she has to deal with it uh, on a daily basis and just how graceful she does it, and then just her insight. You know she's very wise, um, and you know we it's just awesome uh, to be connected to somebody like that um, to be in your house. Um, I, I you know there have been a lot of other people in my life. Uh, because I, uh, I, I was in the military. Uh, I was a uh, Gulf War veteran. Um, I've uh, played uh, football at the high school and the collegiate level, uh, semi-pro football, and I've met a lot of influential um, leaders uh, that not only led by example, but they led by they would tell you and show you, and they, they had a high standard but they they never asked you to do anything that they wouldn't do wouldn't do themselves. So I, I, it's hard for me to pinpoint who would be the second person. Uh, I just think of so many leaders that I have come across, not just in uh, military and and in um, uh, sports, but even in music. Um, I just think about my professors um, that I that I had in college that were actually. Um, you know they were they were they were great musicians, great writers, and they led. You know they they just didn't tell you to do something. They could get in there and do it as well. And mentorship, they they always was there. Even now, I still keep in contact with my professors, and I've been out of college over thirty years. Uh, I, it's nothing to um, shoot an email and say, "What do you think about this?" I'm trying to do this. What do you think about that? And they they're very honest. Uh, straightforward and it and you know it's just awesome to be able to have to be access to uh, things of that nature. 
Yeah, definitely. I don't know if you got any of the lyrics that you want to share real quick, and then we'll get ready to totally wrap everything up. I know Dean will pop back on and share where the show can be re-aired, re-heard, and all of that. But definitely, if you got any of the lyrics that you want to share, that's your opportunity to do that. And all for all of you, I'd love to hear and it's something I try to do on all my shows, um, your thoughts of positivity, your thoughts of reflection, and something that you would like to share with our global audience in terms of a message of positivity. We've been talking about leadership, but I'm also about positivity as well. So, Rico, um, first of the lyric, and then also if you've got any words of positivity that you'd like to share with our global audience. Okay. Um, I'm thinking about the, the hook that I wrote uh, for the single uh, off the – it's the new single that's off of the album. It's called Rescue Me, and it, it, I just – I just it was about the journey that we have as believers of Christ that we don't always have it together and sometimes we we're in this walk and we think we have it all together and then we find ourselves in a situation we need to be helped out so the so the hook goes there's clouds in the sky that I can't see lord help me see in the spirit what's ahead of me I'm trying to hold on to the steering wheel lord I've lost my way please rescue me well, definitely something we all need is that rescue and, and all of that. Any words of positivity that you'd like to share outside of being rescued with our audience? And then I'll say the same thing to Scott and Alan. And then, like I said, Dean will come in and uh, wrap everything up along with myself. But definitely uh, any words of positivity that you'd like to share, Rico? I just think that uh, we we need to learn how to be tolerant and love each other. Something has happened uh, in this world where if somebody does not think like you or they don't, they're not they're not cookie cutter like you. Then they're bad, and people are very have been very mean to people. And I just wish that people would go back and start learning how to love and be uh, be merciful, because uh, we all need somebody to show mercy. For, uh, to us, because we're we're not we're not perfect and we make mistakes, and so we need to extend that same um, gratitude, uh, that same opportunity to your fellow man. I wish that, uh, and I pray daily that that we could get back to loving each other and having honest dialogue about things that are our differences. When you know, especially the pandemic has allowed us to. See, see the, the the cruel underbelly of America that nobody wants to talk about the racial injustice, police brutality, and when and then you know and you know when you have these these dialogues and, and it's in the history books of of our uh, the ugly side of of the United States, people don't want to talk about that and they get defensive and they think you're attacking them, but it's in the books. So let's have honest dialogue and and speak first. And then you know, learn to understand the other per- other portion, person's point of view, and if and learn how to agree to disagree, and don't take that stuff personal because we're all different. But I wish we could get back to loving and and having honest dialogue with each other, and 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 move forward and and love love each other. You know, no doubt about that. What about yourself, Scott? What are some of your thoughts, uh, final thoughts that you want to leave in a minute or two about uh, some positivity and encouragement? Yeah, so I'm I'm just going to 
pick this up and, and maybe uh, put another phrase or a little punctuation on it. I loved everything that you just said. Um, I, I really see it through the lens of dignity, and I think dignity goes both ways. If I don't have decorum and speak to you with that decorum, I don't have dignity, but I'm also robbing you of your dignity. And I think we need to get back to that. We don't need to shout at each other, even though we're angry, even though we're legitimately angry. That's that's really not the point. The point is, I think the lesson that we can take from our forefathers is, even if you're angry, even if you disagree, even if you think you're never going to agree, preserve your own dignity, don't rob the other person of their dignity, and that's the way you'll communicate. Maybe you won't find common ground, maybe you will. Um, and the rest of it really just is express that gratitude, acknowledge skill, watch what happens around you. Um, and, and I don't want to be left out of the the, the poetry thing and the, and the music thing. So I write haiku. And it's okay. not on the level of Alan's poetry, but I got one that uh, just – it's just a few syllables that paint a picture. So I'm, I'm going to offer this to you guys. This one's All called right. hobo, hobo, which is one of my favorite words, hobo. Um, everything battered except the fresh cigarette hanging from his lip. That's my haiku, mm. hobo. Hobo. I like it. That was a nice haiku. <laughs> Definitely catchy and everything. So I appreciate that. So didn't want to just leave you out of guess and catch that part and everything. Alan, any words of positivity that you want to share? And then Dean's going to jump in and tell folks where they can listen. Yes. First and foremost, never stop, never quit, repeat. Uh, second of all, if you fall, fall forward. If you fail, it doesn't make you a failure. So whatever you guys may, whatever these people out here may be going through, if you fail, it doesn't make you a failure. And please continue to persist through life no matter what obstacles you face. Find accountability partners. Find battle buddies, people that will be with you in the trenches, people that will be with you at peacetime, and find those people that will lift you up. And I really enjoy being on the show. Appreciate you being on. Appreciate Rico being on. Definitely appreciate it, Scott, as well. Hey, Dean, you're my uh, trench buddy in the trenches with us here over here at uh, Straight Talk with Dean and Mark. And, of course, we've had another amazing show focusing this time around leadership and promotions and uh, definitely education and a lot of other things as well. So what is your thoughts about what you heard? I thought it was a great conversation, and we definitely touched on a lot of very powerful conversations. But as my partner in crime, what was your thoughts? I got two minutes, and uh, it's an outstanding conversation, and we thank all of our guests for being with us tonight, man. It's, it's Straight Talk with Dana Mark. Monday night at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Be sure to catch our replays on the Skyhawk Radio Network tomorrow and Wednesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you missed those, we got a number of replays on Radio Public, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Spreaker, TuneIn, Stitcher, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, Podcast Addict, CastBox, Podfollow, Deezer, GeoSaving, and right here on Blog Talk Radio. Like I always say, now when you walk outside your front door, it's showtime anywhere there's your stage. 
just make sure that people are not watching the rehearsal. And with that being said, it's Six Man Dean Geronimo. Have an outstanding week. We'll see y'all in seven days. That's right. Another great conversation in seven days. Hopefully we'll have some more amazing guests. We had some truly amazing guests today that were sharing their, their wisdom and everything. So I'll be trying to line those up. And, of course, you know, we've got those various other shows that we also air on the network and did not get a chance to run all of them down because of time constraints. But definitely if you go on the website, you'll see that there are many other shows where we carry this message on, including the two that I did earlier today that were on the IBM TV network, now called Pod TV. But definitely looking forward to some great uh, conversations and definitely continue these dialogues because that's what life is about. As many of our guests said, it's about educating and it's also about positivity and it's about encouraging each other as well and that's one of the things that i think me and dean do a great job of here on these platforms as well as on some of our other platforms that we are affiliated with whether that's some of my work in the community or whether that's dean's work in some of the organizations that he's part of but definitely is something that we do on a daily basis as part of our lives and we definitely try to do it within this media conglomerate that we have put together i would argue dean that it's almost like a media empire I think me and you have put together somewhat of a media empire. We might not have the same kind of clout as, say, a Ted Turner, but that's just in 2021 on May 10th. We're still working on it, and maybe we'll get that clout after a while. Yeah, we will, but uh, we're getting there. So keep rolling with us, and uh, we see y'all. See y'all. Peace. See you next week. Childhood is wanting a variety of different baked sweets and someone telling you no. Adulthood is wanting a variety of different baked sweets and being able to go right to Mickey D's to get every single one you want. <laughs> Whenever you want. Get the new glazed full of hard donut and a 99 cents any sized iced coffee with pumpkin spice flavor. Sweet. Prices and participation may vary. Limited time only. Iced coffee promo available until 11 a.m. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Life gets a lot more magical when you dream. So let's dream of a vacation unlike any other. A magical Disney cruise. <laughs> Hiya, pal! Where new stories meet tales as old as time. Enchanté, mon ami! And your family will be cared for the moment you step aboard. Sail from Florida to Disney's private island paradise and get ready for a dream come true with Disney Cruise Line. 
Duncan is putting a whole new spin on pumpkin at Duncan with our new pumpkin cream cold brew. Smooth, bold, cold brew topped with velvety pumpkin cream cold foam made with cinnamon and nutmeg spices. And there's more pumpkin for you to love, like the delicious fall classic, our pumpkin spice signature latte. Rich espresso topped with whipped cream, caramel drizzle, and cinnamon sugar. That's how we pumpkin at Duncan. Sip into the fall season with a $3 medium pumpkin cream cold brew or pumpkin spice signature latte. America runs on Duncan. Participation may vary. Limited time offer. Exclusion apply. Valid on pumpkin spice signature latte only in all cold foam cold brew. You did it. You woke up today. You even got out of bed. You deserve a reward. We can't all be morning people, but we can all get McDonald's for breakfast. Right now, mix and match a Chicken McGriddles or a McChicken Biscuit for just 3 bucks. Order ahead on the Mickey D's app. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with combo meal. Single item at regular price. Mobile order and pay at participating McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Life gets a lot more magical when you dream. So let's dream of a vacation unlike any other. A magical Disney cruise. <laughs> Hiya, pal! Where new stories... Meet tales as old as time. Enchanté, mon ami. And your family will be cared for the moment you step aboard. Sail from Florida to Disney's private island paradise and get ready for a dream come true with Disney Cruise Line. You did it. You woke up today. You even got out of bed. You deserve a reward. We can't all be morning people, but we can all get... McDonald's for breakfast. Right now, mix and match a Chicken McGriddles or a McChicken Biscuit for just 3 bucks. Order ahead on the Mickey D's app. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with combo meal. Single item at regular price. Mobile order and pay at participating McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Life gets more magical when you dream. So dream of a Disney cruise filled with magic and wonder. <laughs> Hiya, pal! Sail from Florida to Disney's private island paradise and get ready for a dream come true with Disney Cruise Line. Childhood is wanting a variety of different baked sweets and someone telling you no. Adulthood is wanting a variety of different baked sweets and being able to go right to Mickey D's to get every single one you want. Whenever you want. Get the new glazed full of hard donut and a 99 cents any sized iced coffee with pumpkin spice flavor. Sweet. Prices and participation may vary. Limited time only. Iced coffee promo available until 11 a.m. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Life gets a lot more magical when you dream. So let's dream of a vacation unlike any other. A magical Disney cruise. <laughs> Hiya, pal. Where new stories... Meet tales as old as time. Enchanté, mon ami. And your family will be cared for the moment you step aboard. Sail from Florida to Disney's private island paradise and get ready for a dream come true with Disney Cruise Line. You did it. You woke up today. You even got out of bed. You deserve a reward. We can't all be morning people, but we can all get... McDonald's for breakfast. Right now, mix and match a Chicken McGriddles or a McChicken Biscuit for just 3 bucks. Order ahead on the Mickey D's app. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with combo meal. Single item at regular price. Mobile order and pay at participating McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Life gets more magical when you dream. So dream of a Disney cruise filled with magic and wonder. <laughs> Hiya, pal! 
Sail from Florida to Disney's private island paradise and get ready for a dream come true with Disney Cruise Line. 